Matthew, the 12th chapter, verse 38 is where we're picking it up. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law come to Jesus and said, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Now, we don't know what they were up to. Uh, they were always up to no good if they came and were asking for something. It couldn't have been a good thing because these guys were pretty nasty. They hated Jesus. We already read they are planning to kill him, which they eventually do. Of course, all that was foretold. It was all part of God's plan that he would be the Lamb of God who died on the cross for the sins of the world. It was orchestrated, sadly, by religious people. These guys were extremely religious. Uh, Jesus didn't care much for them either. There was a lot of tension between the two. He openly rebuked them, ridiculed them, mocked them, and uh, stood up against their authority because they had corrupted God's message. Uh, instead of giving the truth of God's word, they came along and made it more about legalism and building their own ego and pride and self-esteem. And, uh, and Jesus really had wanted no part of it. So they come to him and say, we'd like to see a sign from you. Who knows what they were trying to set him up for. But Jesus answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign. Highly insulting. He's basically calling them adulterers and a bunch of wicked people. Now these are the most religious men of their day. And this was his response to them. Again, a lot of tension between the two. Only wicked people ask for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Jonah, if you remember the account, running from God, gets thrown into the sea, big fish grabs him, whale whatever, and spits him up on the ground. Okay? Uh, and he says, so he says, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Uh, we just talked about in the Apostles' Creed. You know, on the third day, he rose again. Uh, now, that's a little bit different than the way we think. When, you know, when they said three days, um, it meant a different time sense than we do. In other words, when he died on Friday, that was the first day. We think it's got to be 24 hours before it's a day. That wasn't how they thought. Uh, so Friday was day one. He was in the grave day two on Saturday. And on the third day, Sunday, is when he arose. He wasn't actually in the grave for three days, as we would think. Um, so that's where that's coming from. And, and they knew what he was talking It's very interesting that um, Jesus' disciples never quite understood what Jesus was talking about when he said he was going to die on the cross. He would be in the grave. He said, we're going to Jerusalem. They're going to arrest me. They're going to kill me. And then I'll raise on the third day. And they had, they had no idea what he was talking about. Uh, they seem at times to be incredibly dense human beings. The only thing you could say in their defense, however is Jesus was constantly speaking to them in parables. By and large, they didn't understand most of what he was saying. And they would come to him and say, why are you talking like this? We don't know what you're talking about. And then at times he would try to explain and they still struggled with it, you know, which we're going to read about in just a minute. But uh, so in their defense, Jesus was constantly talking in, you know, parables. At some point you get comfortable just not listening anymore, said all the married people. So anyway... Um, <laughs> So that's kind of thing the way they were. And I don't think they ever quite got it. Interestingly, of all the people who knew what he was talking about, the Pharisees knew what he was talking about. They knew that he was saying that on the third day he would raise again. They were the ones, if you will remember the account, went to the authorities and asked them to put Roman guards over the grave because they said, he said he would rise on the third day. They heard it. They knew exactly. They didn't believe. I mean, these guys were really sick dudes. But uh, they knew it. 
Interestingly, that his own disciples didn't quite get it. So anyway, uh, so he tells them this. Now, there is a little quirk here in this account. And let me talk about this for just a minute. There are little tiny, it's, it's amazing. The Bible is one of the most amazing, it's probably the most amazing not probably this, the most amazing document ever in the history of mankind, in that it was put together over thousands of years by multiple writers. Not one person. It wasn't like Jesus said, most of these, you know, uh, religions have one guy who sits down and gives them all their thoughts and puts everything together. That wasn't, Jesus himself never wrote anything, which is quite fascinating. But over all these thousands of years, all these guys, and the connecting, and the consistency over and over and the clarity of God's purpose and plan and truth to human beings throughout the entire Bible is stunning to have a document that accurate where that many different people would virtually agree on virtually everything. It, the chances of that, it's virtually impossible. The only way it pulls off is because the Holy Spirit inspired these men to do it. Even just in the New Testament, just the Gospels. You got four Gospels. By these guys, and you read it, it's almost word for word from, from one to the other. It's stunning. One of them wasn't even there. Luke. Luke wasn't there. Luke didn't come into Christianity to well, well after as best as we can tell, uh, you know, halfway through Paul's teaching. It's stunning. Yet, when you read the Gospel of Luke, it's just like, wow, it's amazing what happened. Having said all of that, there are, they are human beings who put all this together. There are little human elements that you see pop up from time to time. Now, uh, there are some real hardcore people who say, no, 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 there's no mistakes at all in the Bible. It's inerrant and all these. Well, the God's truth is inerrant. To say that there's absolutely no sign of humanity in any of this is quite a bit of a stretch. The only way to explain some of these things away, you've got to do some real intellectual backflips. And, and it doesn't serve us anyway. It, it, there's nothing to be afraid of. The fact that there's some human elements in this, as few as they are, is stunning that it's that few. It's absolutely amazing. And the fact there might be little things that kind of, you know, don't quite jive together mean nothing. Most of them are just insignificant little things. It, and then, of course, people come up with, oh, you know, I, I can't believe in the Bible because there's, you know, inconsistencies. No. Now, I promise you, anyone who ever tells you there's inconsistencies in the Bible have never read the Bible. Take it to the bank. <laughs> Ask the next time someone says, I can't believe in the Bible. There's, there's, it's contradictory. Really, what parts? Ask them, they'll go, I don't know. You know, they never read it. They don't know what they're talking about. They're, they're reporting some, some stupid thing some professor told them in college or something. Oh, yeah, there's inconsistent. They just don't want to believe. That's their thing, okay? Uh, are there little quirky things? On occasion, there are. Now, what's amazing is even when you read the Bible, there's oftentimes notations in there where it will mark that some of the early documents don't have the exact same phraseology or that phraseology. We'll even see one coming up in just a minute. Um, so it's amazing how open even guardians of the scriptures are to say, look, there's some, there's some versions of early transcripts that don't have this, so we mark this, just so you know. They leave it in there, but just so you know. Uh, that's how detailed they were. Of course, people say, well, over time, messages change. You know what's amazing? Is they said that for a lot in the beginning of the uh, 1900s, you know, so, oh, the Bible can't be true because, you know, things change over time. If they start a story over here, and we get to here, and then we send it on to you guys in Appleton, and you all tell the story there, and then we mail it over to Stevens Point, and then they tell the story. By the time we get the story will be totally different, you know. Well, that may or may not be true, but one thing is clear, that did not happen in the Bible. 
because early in the last century, they came across this discovery called the Dead Sea Scrolls. You don't hear much about it because the, uh, the secular world doesn't want to admit that it exists. But they went back and found actual physical copies of the earliest manuscripts. And they are word for word exactly what we have today. It is one of the most stunning uh, uh, you know, discoveries, archaeological discoveries of all time. You don't hear a lot about it because you know, I don't think they kind of downplay all that. But uh, that, so the overwhelming evidence of the scriptures is just stunning. To have a few little quirky things and then dismiss the Bible because of them is absurd. It would be like reading accounts of what happened on 9-11. And this account, someone says, the planes hit at this time on the 110th floor. And then someone else says, no, it was five minutes later on the 118th floor. Uh, therefore, there's contradictories. Therefore, 9-11 never happened. It was absurd. Just because people have a little, you know, a little viewpoint of this, that, or the other doesn't change the fact that it actually happened. The same thing with the scriptures. All that to say this. The one little quirk that I'm talking about is where Matthew writes where Jesus uses the phrase three days and three nights. Now, no other account has that phrase. Uh, if there were and three nights, Jesus would have raised on Monday, not Sunday. When Luke or whoever recounts the exact same statement, he says Jesus did not say and three nights. Where did the and three nights come from? I don't know. Okay. One thing is it doesn't change Jack. Now, if you want to not believe, here's a good reason not to believe. Which is really all this is. I think sometimes God allowed the humanist to come through just so people have a reason not to believe. They don't want to believe. You know, to say that the entire Christian experience and Jesus did not really occur because of these three words are thrown in and the other guys don't have three words is absurd and ludicrous. Again, these are the kind of things people who don't want to believe look for. A lot of them in the Old Testament, a lot of timeline things that don't quite jive, but they all flesh out in the end. Uh, that's why these guys are looking for these things to say that the Bible isn't true. Again, they are about minor things that don't mean jack squat. All right. So there you go. Now, he goes on, he says, now the men of Nineveh, these are the people that Jonah preached to, and then they repented when he, they heard the message. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now something greater than Jonah is here, talking about himself. He's the Messiah. I'm here, you won't repent. The guys, they repented when they heard Jonah. And then he talks about... Uh, uh, during Solomon's day, he says, the queen of the south will rise in judgment against this generation and condemn it. Again, you notice how often Jesus talks about judgment. He is constantly reminding him the day of judgment, the day of judgment, the day of judgment. It's something most preachers never talk about today and most people don't want to hear. There is a day coming and people live like there's no day coming. This is pure foolishness on our end. But he says, the queen of the south will rise in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, of course, she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. Now someone greater than Solomon is here. And then Jesus gives this analogy about demon possession, which we won't get into. Apparently, there's something about these spirits. They're miserable unless they're in something or somebody. That's why spirits seek to possess people because they're very freaked out if they're not in people. Or we read the one time where the spirits, you know, asked to be put in the pigs. They want to be in something physical. So he says, when an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and cannot find it. That's what motivates them to possess somebody. 
Then it says, I'll return to the house I left. And when it arrives, ta-da, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there. The final condition of that person is worse than the first. These are people who God sets free. They don't really do anything to fill the void. Uh, and then they just basically are open targets again because they've never filled that empty void. Jesus says, this is how to be with this wicked generation. He's really talking about... Uh, the nation of Israel. He's here. He's now. He is there. John the Baptist came, preached. Jesus comes doing all these miracles. Then when he leaves, there's going to be this huge void because they never repented. And then great judgment would come. And uh, we know that Jesus at one point will read where he looks at the city and he weeps over the city because he wanted to save it, but they wouldn't repent. And uh, he warned that uh, judgment was coming at them. And we know that that happened about 70 AD, the Romans came down and crushed the city of Jerusalem, encircled it, starved the people out. As people were trying to escape the city, they would grab them and they would crucify them. Uh, history tells us that they actually ran out of wood. They had crucified so many people around the city. It was a bloodbath of just astronomical proportions. Jesus saw this coming and had so wanted them to repent, but they wouldn't hear any of it. And uh, sure enough, it, uh, it came on them. Okay, so now we'll continue. Verse 46. While Jesus was still speaking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak with him. And that's verse 47 says, someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. Now, if you'll look at the notes in your Bible, you'll see, for those of you who have notations, this is one of those phrases where they say it's not in some of the early texts. Uh, just verse 47, where someone said, your mother and brothers want to see you. So they, even though they're always pointing out it's in a lot of texts, but not in all of them. So they kind of flag it. Again, it's insignificant. It means nothing. But that's the detail these guys have taken to make sure that this thing is told accurately. So anyway, he's talking about Jesus. Mom shows up with his brothers. Now, this is problematic if you're a Roman Catholic. Uh, and again, we're not anti-Catholic. We love Catholics. We love everyone. Not to hate anybody. But Catholics and Protestants don't agree on a few fundamental things. This is one of them. From a Catholic worldview, Mary was holy and divine, much like Jesus himself, was without sin, never had sex with Joseph, and stayed a virgin all of her life and became holy. Now they pray, pray to her. Um, from a Protestant worldview, we reject that because nowhere in the Bible does it even hint at such a thing. Uh, you'll notice here, it doesn't even mention her name. She was not lifted up as anything special in any way, shape, or form. Not in the Bible. This came Hundreds of years later, they added all this. It's one of the things we disagree about. Peace. You know? Um, clearly, the Bible says he had brothers. Now, one of the way Catholic theologians get around this is they say, well, Joseph must have been married before, and then when he married Mary, he brought in these kids, and that was where the brothers came from. Huge step. Uh, that's, I don't think, what happened at all. Um, of course, they believe that they were never intimate when Matthew specifically says that when they got married, they did not have intimate relations until after Jesus was born, which implies what? They did after he was born. Okay, but from their worldview, sex was evil and it would make you filthy and, you know, which wasn't very healthy because then for thousands of years, Christians have had a problem with sex. You know, sex does not make you evil uh, in marriage. You're as pure in marriage with sex as you are before having sex. What makes it impure is when you're doing it outside of marriage. All right. 
All right, so anyway, was Mary divine? No, she was not. Is Mary without sin? No, she was not. Should we pray to Mary? No, we should not. Do we hate people who do? No, we do not. <laughs> you want to pray to Mary? Knock yourself out. Why you would do that, I don't know. The Bible says we should pray to God. Why you'd want to talk to his mom or his accountant or anybody else, I have no idea. Just talk to God. What is that? I don't understand that, but I'm not a Catholic. Okay. So anyway, they come and say, hey, your mom's outside with your brothers. And this is what Jesus said. He says, verse 48, who's my mother? Who are my brothers? And pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Forever, whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Okay, now, and then it goes on. The implication here is he did nothing about it. That he just left them there, uh, which sounds pretty rude. Now, others think, well, he said this and then he went and saw them. I don't know what he did. I wasn't there, okay? Clearly, the implication is, mom, ah, I got my mom, my brother's there. And, uh, and they just moved on, which I would think would really tick off mom. But uh, I don't know. I wasn't there. It is consistent with what Jesus said. Look, if you're going to serve me, you have to serve me no matter who it separates you from or who it connects you with. He said, anybody who loves family more than me is not worthy of me. And that speaks to a lot of people. There are a lot of people who are much more concerned about what their family thinks about them than what God thinks about them. And they will compromise and give up on their faith because of pressure from their family. These are people, Jesus said, are not worthy of me. If that's you, dude, you're in a bad place. You need to cut the umbilical cord and move on. All right, Matthew, the 13th chapter now. It says, now that same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat on it while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables, which is what we were talking about, these stories that he would give. So now he's about to give one of his very famous parables. He's had lots of them. A lot of them don't really pop out, but there's a handful of them that are like, wow, these are one of the major ones. This is one of the major ones. He spends a lot of time here in explaining this one. He explains it to his disciples. A lot of them, he just says statements and there's no ad-libbing or explaining it. There's a few of them that he does. This is one of them. So here is the famous parable of the sower. All right, so this is the parable he gives. He says, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path and the birds came, ate them and took off. Then some fell on rocky places where it didn't have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow, but when the sun came out, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and then choked the plants. Still others fell on good soil where it produced a crop 160, 30 times what was sown. Whoever has ears let him hear, which Jesus often said. He would speak a truth and then basically say, look, if God doesn't turn this on in your head, there's nothing anybody can do. It's true for any preacher, anybody who shares God's truth with people. It's like they don't get it. Only God can help them get it. We need to pray for people that God will turn the light on in their heads. Okay, so anyway, then his disciples come to him and said, why do you do this? Nobody knows what you're talking about. Why do you speak to people in parables? Again, it's easy to criticize them because they miss some key things. In all fairness, they didn't understand most of what he said because he's always talking in these stories and they didn't know what he was talking about. So why are you doing this? And he replied, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given to you, but not to them, which is amazing. These are not bad people. 
These are people who came to hear Jesus, stood outside, left everything to sit there and listen to him, and he still knew they weren't worthy of him because they had ulterior motives. We find out later what they dug was the miracles and the fact that he gave them free sandwiches, which is what we'll find out later. That's when he was really popular when he started you know, feeding the multitudes. Okay, they had ulterior motives. He says, look, whoever has been given more, they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. And he quotes from the Old Testament. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. He intentionally spoke in ways that they wouldn't get it. On purpose. You know, God oftentimes hides his truth. We try desperately to make it clear to people, as we should. But at some point, relax a little bit. God has to do this in people's hearts. All right? Jesus literally spoke in ways that people wouldn't understand what he was saying. Uh, in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, and he speaks again from the Old Testament. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will ever be seeing, but never perce perceiving. For this people's hearts have become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears. They have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, he told his disciples, because they see, and your ears, because they hear. For truly, I tell you, many prophets and righteous people throughout history have longed to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but do not hear it. And then he explains it to them. Okay, now listen to what the parable of the sower means. And he starts to enlighten them. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches it away, what was sown in their heart. Like the birds coming, oh, 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 grab it and take it off, okay? Uh, these are the seeds that were sown along the path. This is a lot of people. Lots of people hear the message of Jesus. They find it interesting for a moment, but before the seed ever can plant into their hearts and mind, it's like Satan comes and snatches it right out of them. Tons of people, millions upon millions of people who have been to churches, who have heard somebody on television. Guys, listen to me right now on TV. Night, right now, this second. You hear me, Sunday to Sunday, but none of this gets into you. It just, it just doesn't, it's just, they're just, it's like seeds on a path. As soon as they're done, they change the channel, move on. Nothing ever sticks. Nothing ever changes them. They're just nothing. We appreciate you watching, but it, nothing sticks. These are very sad. It's sad for these people, I think, uh, that so many people can hear the message of God and nothing takes for them. They're the ones generally who never go to church, never seek out God, nothing. They hear about it, but it's just kind of, you know, zoosh, zoosh. You ever have anybody like that? You share the gospel with them and it's like, zoosh, it goes right by. They have no idea, nothing. Not a single thing you said to them took in any way, shape, or form. Not a single thing took. And those are those kinds of people. Well, then he says in verse 20, the seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. This is awesome. A lot of people fall into this category. They come to church. They come to a revival meeting. They come to a Billy Graham event. They come to some special thing. They ask Christ in their life. They are so excited. They are so thrilled. This is so awesome. I met Jesus. This is great. This is great, great. And it lasts for about a week and a half. Or a couple of months or whatever. And then Jesus says here, but, uh, da, 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 da. but since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. And that's exactly what happens. They're very excited about this message until they realize it costs them something. Until they realize that someone makes fun of them or won't have anything to do with them or the family gives them a hard time or a boyfriend won't be with them anymore, then they give up on their faith in Jesus because they have no root in them. They're very, very shallow, okay? Their Christian experience is very short-lived,
I fear for some of you that your children will fall into this category. It's amazing how many people of faith, evangelical Christians, which is what our church is, they really love Jesus, but it seems like they cannot get their faith into their children. As soon as they're old enough, they split town. They're just, they don't have anything to do with it. They become shallow because you've let them become shallow. You've never really broken up and got deep into them and got character into them. Let too much other stuff get in the way. You want to be careful that you want to get into some good ground into your kids and make sure that ground is good. All right? And don't be inconsistent at home from what they're seeing here at church. It's one of the reasons they don't let it stick. But there's a lot of people like this. They come, they're excited for a while, but when it really matters, they're out of here. And that's the last. Just see them. Lots of people in and out of church doors in that situation. Well then, the next one, verse 22. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word. Now this is a bigger part. There are churches meeting all over the world today. And if anybody... Uh, if in that gathering of, of any of these seeds, these are the ones who show up. They show up. We don't know why they show up. They show up. We're glad they show up. It's nice to see them. But uh, they don't really do anything. They're not really connected to anything. They never volunteer. They give little to no money. They sit down. They check their, punch their God card, and they check out again. That's as much as their Christian experience is. This is a huge percentage. I would say it's overwhelmingly over half of all people who go to churches. Uh, particularly in America today. Maybe different in other parts of the country. I don't think so. But uh, it's a sad commentary that so many people are in this category. These are the people. They receive the word, but nothing happens. Why? Because the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. They're so consumed by life. Everything is more important to them than God. Oh, they cut out an hour of the week to sneak into church and back out again. But that's as far as it goes. And these are the people, they never volunteer. They never get involved in any ministry. They never do anything. They never give any money because all of life is just... And it's like they don't have any time because everything, they're consumed by life itself. And, the, and even the money thing. You know, a lot of people, the reason they don't give money is a lot of them because they don't, don't want to is because they don't have any money. They seriously don't. They are so up to their eyeballs in debt and everything. Like, eh, 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 eh. Boy, if that doesn't describe a lot of people in America today. Richest country in the history of mankind. And it's amazing how many people are broke. Absolutely broke. A lot of you sitting here listening to me right now. Over at Appleton Stevens Point too. Broke as can be. Richest country in the history of the world. And you're broke. Why? Because we fall into this trap. Get a house too big that we don't really need. Drive cars that are too nice that we don't really need. Buy junk that we don't need. We just all this stuff. We get so much stuff. We fill up our garages and stuff and our house and our basements and then we got to rent storage buildings to stick our stuff in that we don't have because we don't have room for all our stuff that we're not going to use anyway. We stuff, 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 stuff. We got all this stuff. And then, and then, and then, and then we, then we reach for the credit card because all our cash is gone. Now we're going to do it on credit. And we become slaves to the credit card. Trust me, the spirit of slavery has never left mankind. There's still slavery in America today. It's just a different massa. Now it's massa card. <laughs> oh, I love you, massa. Oh, massa card. Oh, massa, I'll serve you, massa. Please give me $50, massa card. Thank you. Okay, now I'll pay you back $150 later, okay? And, I'll, I'm gonna, and I'm gonna work overtime and stuff, and I won't be able to do anything because I'm gonna, I'm gonna owe you all this interest because I love you, massa. Oh, ma massa, don't leave me, massa, don't leave me, massa. 
miserable. I know people personally who have incomes in the hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. Some of you envy people. Oh, I wish I had money like that. And I'm telling you, they can't go on vacation. They can't do anything. They can barely go out to dinner because they're broke. Why? Because their house is so stinking big and their cars are so stinking fancy. And they, they have tens of, th they have more on debt on credit cards than many of you earn in a year. All they are is you, just with more money. I tell you all the time, people think, oh my, I just need more money. No, you need to learn how to succeed with the money you got. These people, they're miserable. Make all this money and they're just... And that's, that's their whole experience. They can't volunteer. They got to work day and night on everything. And they're concerned about everything else in life. And they have no money. I wish I could give money, Pastor. But... <laughs> what a lousy way to live. Good grief. We need to get some of you free, man. Staring at me like I dropped in from Mars. You know who I'm talking, you're, mis you're so miserable, you're so, that's why we are, this next year we're going to start encouraging people to attend some class, we have, not so we can get something out of you, so we can teach you how to live free, that's no way to live, what a miserable experience, good grief, all that junk, you know, got people who have all this stuff and they're up to the depth of their eyeballs, and then a guy over here who hardly has anything but he has no debt, you know who envies whom? You know who envies whom? These people envy these people. You need to learn to live free of all. You don't need all that stuff. It just sucks the life out of you. And then you can't do anything. You can't give any money. You can hear the choking when the offering will go around this later this morning. You know? You can't. You honestly can't give. You are up to your eyeballs. Every penny that comes into your room is gone. It's an awful way to live. You don't have to live that way. We can show you how to succeed. Christian people should be the wealthiest people in terms of free cash than any people in the world because we do things right and we have our principles right and we have our priorities right. Better to have a $50,000 a year income with lots of money left over than a $200,000 a year income with nothing left over. What's the point? Is this making sense to anybody? All right. Don't let life and money choke you so you can't do anything. And this is, I'm telling you, this is the biggest threat to people listening to me right now in this church. This is why overwhelmingly the vast majority of people on special programs like we just did give absolutely nothing. They're not evil people. They just, they're choked. They're just choking. It's a horrible way to live, man. Get free. But the seed falling on good ground refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding 160, 30 times what was put inside of them. They give back. These are the people who do live free. Free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, I'm free at last. I'm able to give time into the kingdom of God. I'm able to invest in others. I'm able to get involved in ministries in the church. I'm able to give offerings into the kingdom of God because I am free. And I'm investing. My greatest concern is not the cares of this life. My greatest concern are the cares of the life which is to come.
Hallelujah. When you get to that place, man, there is joy unspeakable. It is great freedom, the joy to be in that place. It's a wonderful place to be. I promise you, the people who are the most generous in this church are not miserable people. They're happy people. Why? Because they're free. Hallelujah. And they're able to give something. Some of them, not a lot, but even the little they give, they give joyfully, freely. It's easy for them to do because they're not consumed with the cares of this life that is robbing them. What a way to live. Some people live 60, 70, 80 years like that. The whole time just, and then they finally die. Oh, what a lousy way to live. Good Lord. Get free. Praise God. Jesus came to get you free in a million different ways. Physically, mentally, emotionally. Praise God in heaven. Financially, all of it. You can be free if you'll just do things. I'm just telling you, the world in which we live, if you're not careful, will suck the life out of you. How do you live in such a consumeristic country yet stay free? You do it by living by God's principles. A lot of you don't know what the principles are. That's why we want to encourage you. We're not going to force you to do it. If you want to stay, have a great time. We want to show you how to, so you can get free, so you can enjoy life, so things will work for you instead of against you. Because when you take God's principles, it will set you free. If you live by the world's principles, it'll just suck the life. It'll make a slave out of you. You think you're free, but you're not free. You'll be a slave all your life. Let's walk in the freedom that Jesus has for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for your truth. Lord, let those who have ears to hear, let them hear. Those who don't, there's nothing we can do. But God, we ask you to turn the light on. And God, I pray specifically for those who are people of faith, but they live in Thorn Alley. Lord, the cares of this life, the deceitfulness of stuff is sucking the life out of them. They can barely function in life. Help us to show them how they can walk free. Help them to teach the principles of righteousness, of generosity, of freedom. And God, help us all be the kind of people that we seek first your kingdom. And then we will learn this wonderful truth that if we will give, it will be given to us. Giving of our money, giving of our time, giving of our concern and care and peace and joy so that we get all of this back in droves and live in peace. We thank you for this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.